0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I'm not in the lion's den. (laughs) I am in Northern Wisconsin, outside of Rhinelander in the North woods, and I'm with Phil Frazier. Phil, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here with you. (laughs) So So, first question, what you smoking? (laughs) I am smoking a Fuente Grand Reserve. I love it. Cool. And I just started on one I have not tried yet. It is a uh, Gurkha Cellar Reserve. Those that are in the Holy Smokes group know I love to bash Gurkhas. I had yesterday, you had these Blendmasters cask, and I had one of these. It's It says it's aged 15 years, and uh, the Blend Masters cask mm-hmm. was a good one. Yeah. It, was, it was actually really good, and uh, this one, You actually started it. I started it and put it down and went back to the Fuente. Yeah. So this one started out a little harsh, but see how it goes as we go. Mm -hmm. And uh, Curtis Wilson, I've had two Gurkhas in the last 24 hours. So one of them I actually liked. Yeah. So Phil. They were my first, so I never had them before. Yeah. So Phil, you're originally from the Rhinelander area. Born and raised here. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a business, a family-owned business, that's been around 103 years? 103 years, yeah. Talk about it. My great-grandfather came here from out
1: east and went into the plumbing trade and started a plumbing business, and he moved to Rhinelander and hung up his shingle and did west side plumbing at first, and then it turned to Fraser's Plumbing and Heating, Shortly after that, in the 20s, when my grandfather took it over, my great-grandfather died when my grandfather was, I like think, 19. And so my grandpa oh. had to take the business over then mm. at 19. And my great-grandfather was kind of like the town drunk in a little mm. bit. And my grandfather said nobody wanted you know, the town drunk's kid working for him or doing anything, and so he went around and hung these signs up all around town and said he'd put any water heater in under any condition for $18 back in the twenties. Yeah. $18. Yeah. (laughs) And so he just gained a lot of customers and my grandpa was loved by many people helped a lot of people and really is what built the relation side of our business with our community. And,
0: Mm. and
1: then my father took it over in the eighties and uh, then Joanne and I came here in 96 and came back to the family business.
0: Yeah. Now, growing up here in the Rhinelander area, I mean, there's not a whole lot up here. No. It's <laughs> low population no. and the uh, north woods of Wisconsin, lots of fishing, lots of hunting, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But in terms of culture and civilization, this is pretty small town, you know, sparsely populated. Not a lot of big towns around here. You gotta mm-hmm. You got to drive a long ways to get to a Costco or... three and and a half hours I think is our closest Costco (laughs) (laughs) so So what was it like growing up here
1: well you know when I was a kid everybody knew everybody you know you knew when there was a you know somebody a tourist or out-of-town person came in you're like who's that because everybody knew everybody and uh, we live in a town it's been seven to eight thousand my whole life and we're the biggest town in the three counties most the other little towns Eagle River Medaqua all those little tourist towns they're you know 12 1500 people Mm -hmm. a high tourism area you know in the summer our population you know probably is about tenfold of what it is now Mm -hmm. and there's some beautiful lake homes up here and homes on islands and largest inland lake inland chain in the in the world is up here chain of lakes yeah and three lakes area so it growing up here was you know there's paper mill people you know there's the paper mills and those have been you know all the old logging camps and my great grandma she cooked at the logging camp for all the guys in the ccc camps back in the day and Mm -hmm. she lived to be 103 and still remember her and her big hands and the way she could cook and the coffee she could make was like in these old-fashioned pots but it was so good yeah and her pancakes and syrup and stuff but it was (laughs) You know, that's how we grew up. And we grew up working hard, but we played hard, too. Yeah. And we loved the outdoors. And, you know, some of my early memories with my grandpa were he had this big old oak table, and he'd lay the map. It was like a big blown-up map of our area. And he'd give me a fillet knife and say, all right, close your eyes and drop it. And I'd drop it, and with the closest lake it stuck to, he'd say, let's go fish. Yeah. It was, that's kind of fun stuff like that. Yeah. Too. So, But, yeah, but we
0: worked hard and played hard. Now, you grew up in a big family. hmm You were number seven of nine. Seven of nine. I had six sisters and two brothers. What was that like growing up?
1: Ah, uh, eventful. <laughs> it was, at first we had one bathroom and uh, four bedrooms. My parents had one, and there was, you know, three bedrooms for all of us to share. And then... I remember one day my dad, my two brothers and I, and we broke up the basement floor and we put a put a bathroom in in the basement, and that was the boys' bathroom then. So we had a shower stall and a toilet and all that. So this was like, finally, a second bathroom yeah. with six sisters, you know. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> Yeah. but it was, you know, we were in sports, and we're all working at the family business, and we were open on Saturdays then full-time with a hardware store, and my mom had a bath shop, like the Bath Boutique, I think it was called, and so wood stoves and rebuilt pumps and faucets and you know cutting well pipe for people on Saturdays growing up and uh, a lot of stuff i didn't like but took for granted what we learned you know mm-hmm. growing
0: up yeah and all those older sisters you told me a story yesterday as we were driving around seeing the town your sister went to high school with mike webster my oldest sister was in the same class as mike and now, for those that don't know, Mike Webster was a Hall of Fame center for the Steelers, won four Super Bowls with the Steelers, mm-hmm. then went on to play for the Chiefs and retired with the Chiefs and ducked into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And mm-hmm. I think it was 97, the 97 mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, Mike Webster was a hero growing up. Mm-hmm. There was something about, so I remember getting these football sticker books when I was in early elementary school, mm-hmm. I think it was second grade. And you get the sticker and you get the book right. and you put the sticker in the book and I just remember looking and seeing Mike Webster, Tomahawk, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and uh, played for the Badgers. I was big into He-Man, and he looked like a real-life He-Man. I mean, the guy had biceps like yeah. no one else I ever saw in in the NFL. Yeah, and just, so he was the
1: strongest man in the NFL. I think three years in a row when they had those yeah contests and yeah. stuff. And but I, I remember being really, you know, I was little and probably less than ten, and all these you know, high school kids, I think they were juniors or seniors, and and they came over to our house, and Mike was a standout, obviously, Yeah. you know, and everybody was talking about him, that he was going to go, you know, play for the Badgers, and so I was like, I had to, and I could, you know, we all listened to the AM radio back then when the games were played, and we'd have them on, and we were real close, as I showed you, we'd like right through the woods from the stadium, so yeah. I'd, I'd go outside, and I could see the lights, and I could hear the cheering, and I could hear the announcer. Todd McEldon, I could hear him over the uh, <laughs> loudspeaker. So when Mike Webster and the other guys came to our house, I kept trying to sneak in the living room to get a peek at him and getting chased up <laughs> by my sisters. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was really, really neat to see that and then watch his career and know he came from our town, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. The Rhinelander Hodeg.
0: Hodag. Now, talk about the Hodags, because that was an interesting story. The the mascot for the town is a mythical creature.
1: It's a mythical creature, and a guy named Gene Shepard came up with this probably around the turn of the century, and he was a real, you know, trying to get people to come into the Northwoods and try to affect the tourism. So, he came up with this story about the, the Hodag and this mythical creature, and did all these like he'd enact like a play people come and he'd actually have like a a play he'd enact and he would talk about the hoed egg and then he had these taxidermists make these uh, with real fur and real horns and you can look it up online the hoed egg but it's a crazy creature and it's been our mascot which is really unique and mike webster was
0: one of the best Rylander
1: hoed eggs ever
0: <laughs> so <laughs> now growing up it wasn't a healthy environment for you Mm-mm. talk about that
1: well you know our our family my mom and dad were high school sweethearts both came from um, especially my mom pretty dysfunctional family and um, they got married and just with nine kids I mean it's like you know and here we go but there was a lot of Pretty severe abuse in our family, and we had the police at our house. You know, I remember probably four times the police being at our house, and uh, just it just was a, a really tough situation with abuse. And especially one of my sisters was abused really bad by my mother, physically. And you know, and I would protect. I try to protect her, and um, some of the siblings avoided and just kind of stayed busy and. I would just fight and protect for Mary and it was yeah, a lot of not real good memories, but thankfully God intervened later and talk about that. So it's
0: a really amazing story.
1: Yeah. So I was in high school and I had moved out when I was sixteen, just taken off. I came back and so I was a junior then and like just turned seventeen. And I'd been working in the family business and My brother and I were working on a project, he's a year older than me, we were working on a project at a racquetball court with a plumber and this plumber would come to the job, the master plumber that worked for my dad, we had 40 some employees but this one guy was new and he kind of intimidated us, he was a big guy and Mm -hmm. he would tell us, all right, here's what you do, dig this ditch, lay this pipe, put it in this way. My brother and I were not plumbers, we knew plumbing but we weren't plumbers and Mm so,
0: you said he was a master level plumber.
1: He was a master plumber. Yeah. So that's, it's, um, you know, you've got to go through about eight years to be, get your master plumber's license. And anyway, so we did this racquetball club, and some of the plumbing wasn't right. And the owner of the racquetball club, he could have, you know, had a lawsuit or whatever, but or had us make things right, and which we did. You know, our family did make right, but the plumbing wasn't right, because me and my brother were left alone in high school to do it while this guy was off gallivanting and drinking. And so my dad, I remember he was gonna go meet with this guy and it was the big meeting and we were all kind of nervous about it. And my dad was gonna go meet with him and talk to him about how to make this right. So I went out with my friends that night, and I got back early, it was probably eleven o'clock at night. And I got back, and my dad was home. And I I said, "Well, how'd that go? How'd your meeting go?" And um, this guy had a really, really like super high voice, like extremely high. Like I've never heard anything like that out of a a guy before. It just it was his voice. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of made fun of him, my brother and I did, and. So I said, how'd your meeting go with, with Dick Mark? And he said, I don't know how to tell you this. I said, what do you mean? I said, how'd it go? And he said, well, I'm born again. And I said, what are you talking about? And now to back up, I mean, my dad had never, ever been affectionate with me or any of us, hardly saw him smile. No hugs. You said they fought every morning every at Every morning there was fights every single morning.
0: Between your parents.
1: My parents, yep. Damn it to hell anyway, you son of a bitch. I'd hear from, sorry, but yeah. that's what I heard every morning from my mom, almost every morning, to my dad. And just the fighting and slamming of cupboards, and it was just a bad situation. And so all of a sudden this one night when I come home and my dad says this to me, he starts approaching me to tell me, that he all of a sudden had God in his life or something. And I was like, this is weird. And I felt like he was gonna try and give me a hug and I backed off because I'm like, what is this? And so I just said, literally said, whatever floats your boat. And I said, I'm going to bed. And I went to bed. Next morning, I'm thinking, this has to have gone away. Whatever this was, I don't know what, that's just not my dad. I don't know if he was drinking or if he was, and he didn't really drink at all, hardly. And I was like, what is going on with him? Well, the next morning, He tries to talk to me again, and I just left for school. And all day, I couldn't get it off my mind. I'm like, what is going on? Well, then like two weeks later, and my parents have told me this story. I was sleeping, but my mom elbows my dad in the middle of the night. He's sleeping, and she'd been seeing this change in him, and he's been talking to her along with the man that led him to the Lord. And she's elbowing him, and she says... I need to do this in my life too. Yeah, so they got down on their knees in their bedroom and she gave her life to the Lord. (laughs) And then it got really weird. (laughs) (laughs) So my dad's trying and my mom's trying and they're starting to say I love you and stuff. And I'm like, what is going on? It was just... So foreign to you. Oh, it was like... I felt like I was in a movie or something it was very very
0: strange and uh, so I mean I mean really you were 16 or 17 years old at the time right mm-hmm. and you lived with this abuse in the house this chaotic toxic household and all of a sudden it radically shifts just like that it
1: was a radical shift and I mean horrible physical abuse to a few of us and If you can imagine it, it happened other than sexual. (laughs) But it was, you know... Well, you you told me about... I had my head stuck in a toilet full of poop, and my mom was trying... You know, she kept holding me down because I had been helping my sister, who had to stand outside for hours and hours and hours in the rain and cold and wet her pants, and I went to bring her pants and clean pants. and, And so there's lots of stories that I'm grateful are gone and done. But so this was a huge change. And my dad was leaving my mom notes saying he loved her. And I'm like, what is this? It's like, it was just really different. So this guy who led my dad to the Lord came over to our house and I would sit at the basement steps and I wouldn't go out when I knew he was gonna be there to do a Bible study because I wanted to hear what this was. And I couldn't hear my mom and dad's voices real well But I told Dick later, I said, you were given a high voice because there's a little guy that was sitting at the bottom of the steps that could only hear you in your voice. And I heard everything he said as they were going through this Bible study in the book of Revelation. And I kept sticking around and my dad didn't notice and my mom didn't, but Dick did. Mm -hmm. And he was very sensitive to the fact. And I had been in so much trouble you know, expelled from school and I was in trouble and fights with my hockey coach, fights with the swim coach. It was like, you know, so I sat down there and I listened and listened. Well, then he said, you know, what do you think if we go show a movie? And it was the old real film, you know, the old real, Mm -hmm. real films. And so this was in 79 and um, in September of 79. And so he said, let's go to the racquetball court. So where it all started, we'll go in the basement and we're going to invite people. And they showed the movie, I think, Distant Thunder, Thief in the Night, that whole series from yep. the 70s. Yep. And um, he said, Phil, do you want to come help? And I said, yeah. My dad was like, really? I said, yeah, I want to come help. So I went and helped. And I don't remember who was there. There was a lot of people there. But I just remember that I watched that film and I was like, this is what changed my parents. And as corny as those films kind of are when you look at them now, you know, I'm one of the lives that touched and affected. Oh, yeah. And we were done that night, and we are packing everything up, and I remember I had, like, butterflies, like you get before a game, and I had these butterflies, and I was just, like, anxiety and nervous, and Dick noticed it. And he said, Phil, do you want to talk? And I said, yeah, I do. And he's like do you want to pray? And I said, I don't know how. Yeah, but I do. And he led me to the Lord Mm -hmm. with my dad there. (laughs) So then my dad, (laughs) the next morning, this was really awkward, but he came up to me and he had a note for me and he gave me a note and he said, I love you, brother. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, I had never, and he gave me a hug. And I just kind of stood there as he gave me that hug and he said, I'll be praying for you while you're at school. Cause you know, I know the friends you're with and all the stuff that you got going on in your life. And you know, again, I had run away, I'd been gone and living at a friend's house and then this all happened. But that was the, you know, in 1979, when, when my dad gave his life to the Lord, it was an extreme change and my mom and, um, my dad ended up being best man at my wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, he has been a just a great friend and my mom in a relationship that I thought would never, ever be there.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's pretty cool. So and they're still around. My dad's, yeah, they're both 88. And my dad's got Parkinson's, super bad. But
0: they live right through the woods here, about 100 yards around the bay. And you're on this little lake. Yep. In northern Wisconsin, just yeah. a beautiful view out the back porch. Mm-hmm. It's an idyllic place to just hang out, and it's been a great time up here with you. Well, thank you for letting me yeah. come up and hang. Oh, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad
1: you're here. Yeah, it's a great place. We're very blessed to live here and have my parents here and my aunt and uncle right around the corner. And my grandpa bought this land back in the 30s, and, and uh, I'm really glad he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: so- for you though, the change in your life wasn't as instantaneous as your parents. No, <laughs> my parents, it was like a light switch. For me, it was like a, a
1: dimmer switch. <laughs> it, was, it took a long time and I had to go through, you know, more stuff with, you know, I was with a crazy group of friends, good people, just crazy group of friends. And um, it was a process over probably two years. To the point where I finally was like, I need to get serious about this, and um, I have a little New Testament sitting in the house where I remember when my mom gave me that. The date's still written in it, and I just started reading it and just highlights and notes. And you know, I was hitchhiking all around the country and trying to figure stuff out. And that little Bible was with me everywhere. And then I ended up in Kansas City at Kansas City Youth for Christ and helping build a bible camp down there and that's where god really really got a hold of me and my faith became real at that point how old were you i would have been 19 and 20 that time period Mm. and um that's when you know joanna and i had dated met her at a bible camp that i got kidnapped to
0: (laughs) talk about that story i I love that story
1: (laughs) i was uh Either junior or senior, but I did not want to go to this Bible camp. I mean, I had made given my life to Christ, but I was still playing both sides, you know, run, run a little bit. And so my parents had these big guys come over, and um, <laughs> and they came in my room. I think I had gotten in like at two or three in the morning, and they show up at like five thirty, six in the morning, and I didn't know them at all. And these big guys come in my room, and they go, "Hey, Phil." you're going to camp this weekend. I said, well, n- no, I'm not. And he said, yes, you are. And then they opened my closet. They asked my mom, where's the closet? She said, right there. What clothes do you want? I said, I'm not going. Well, they got me out of bed. We grabbed my clothes and we went. And um, I remember I stopped in sugar camp at a little store and I bought a six-pack of On Decker beer and I had a little bag of marijuana with me. Ended up dumping all that stuff by a big pine tree with a guy named Gary that prayed with me and talked to me, and mm. but that was where I met Joanna. I met her there. She was 15, and you know, ended up kissing her on the chapel porch. And uh, she said at that time she knew we were going to get married. I didn't know that, but um, she would send me these notes all the time. Um, and again, no no texting, no email, nothing like that back then. But I'd get these notes in the mail. And there were cards from her, and she'd say, I'm praying for you. And she'd have a Bible verse and just an encouraging note to me. And I'm like, this is a different girl, something different about her. And I was drawn to her. Even if I'd date other girls and stuff, I was just drawn to her. And then when everything got turned around later at that, down at Kansas City, she was at Moody Bible Institute going there. And we just threw letters back and forth and talking on the phone, I remember I'd call her. And back then, long distance was expensive. Expensive, Oh, yeah. And so I remember the executive director of the ministry coming up one day and he had a big smile on his face. And I had spoken at a youth group at a church in Holdridge, Nebraska. And he came up and he said, here's your $80 check for speaking. And then he smiled. He said, here's your $82 phone bill. And he took it back. <laughs> it was from talking to Joanna over yeah. the phone. we just sit and talk and talk and talk. And so anyway, but then we ended up getting engaged and then married and went into youth ministry in a little town of Winter, Wisconsin, which was where I met John Gilberts, who... Holy who Smoker. introduced me to Holy Smokes.
0: Yeah, Holy Smoker in Colorado Springs, mm-hmm. who we will have on the podcast shortly because mm-hmm. of the what you told me about his story. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get John on. He's a special dude. I love the guy. Yeah,
1: his story is amazing. And he was a kid that everybody in town was talking about this kid. And we had kids we were praying for. And you know, the town constable, the police officer, John Manning, knew John well.
0: For <laughs> the was, wrong reasons. Yeah,
1: but when John gave his life to the Lord it was really an amazing thing and Joanna and I didn't get much of a honeymoon but we took a honeymoon trip and John went with us we're we're working with him and we're so worried about him and but look at what he's doing now and what God's done with his life and
0: Molly and amazing people yeah so, so Joanna is a missionary kid
1: mhm yep she grew up in her grandparents were missionaries in South America pilot and Uh, her grandpa wrote a lot of books about cool little books about the mission field and her parents then went into the mission field Her aunts and uncles she grew up in South America yeah and then they came back for I think it was only like four or five years and that's how I met her her dad was a pastor of a little church in a little town up here and that's how I met her you know through the Bible camp and stuff but uh, yeah she grew up in the church and
0: very different home than mine. And How good was that for you to have the tumultuous, toxic, dysfunctional home that you grew up in? To have this incredible woman, and I, your, your wife is a doll. She mm-hmm. is just amazing. I, mm-hmm. I love her. Yep, she's he special. Yep. Was that a real stable force in your in, in your marriage? To have this person who grew up in a very healthy home, I assume. She did. I mean, there was stuff Yeah, (laughs) like anybody. Right. Yeah. But I remember when I would go to
1: her grandparents' home with everybody for Christmas and I was just like, I've never seen a family operate like this. You know, I've never seen a family and it was the Lord. I mean, it was, I'd never seen anything like that. And I just loved being with her extended family and um, all the things that would, conversations that would happen and the laughter and the games and the you know all the stuff that they would do and the prayer and just hearing the stories about the mission field and Mm. things that were so out of my life you know so foreign to me so yeah it was I I loved it it was very stabilizing for me
0: (laughs) so you got married Mm -hmm. you got into ministry yeah talk about that
1: so we got married and we were doing youth ministry in a little tiny, way smaller than this area. And, um, you know, back in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of youth pastors in these little towns. There was none. Mm-hmm. And so all these little churches, and we had Indian Reservation there, and it, all these little churches had no youth pastors. So all these kids are just whatever. So we we were like the youth pastor for area area for multiple denominations. So we did, you know, the old, probably the youth for Christ model and young life. It's the, you'd have your Bible club on Wednesday night, Thursday, you know, so we had different towns. We'd go to all these towns and each night we had a different one. And then in the mornings we'd have some breakfast at our house and we'd have these kids come in before school and have a, we'd pray with them and just pray for the day. We had a list of kids that we'd pray for that they wanted to share with. And, you know, so that that was, we lived that life. And we took them hunting and fishing trips and take them fishing for 10 days out in the wilderness and camping and just spend quality time with these kids. And a lot of these kids came from, most of them from, you know, split homes and pretty tough situations because of the area they lived in. And so we were... We just lived, we totally lived life with these kids. Yeah. And Joanna told me later how hard that was for her because we're having babies, you know, we have five kids and she's having kids and we're trying to do all this stuff and Saturday night rallies and Bible quizzing and that whole thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. our home, the front door was always open. You never, but there was kids would just show up. They'd just be in there. And so for a young wife and a young couple and a young mother, You know, those were hard times and then we probably made forty five hundred, maybe five thousand a year at the most. And you know, I remember going to the grocery store and one time she was crying and I'm like, Well, what's going on? And she either had to get diapers or milk. You know, and so we were going through that. So I'm like, All right, well let's let's get the diapers (laughs) that was my answer. But, you know, it's just you know, so it was a it was a hard time for her, but she never said a word. She just Never told me that till well after we left there, Mm. that that was really hard for her to be there, but she felt like that's what God called us to. Mm. And it was because we're still connected with a lot of these people today and they're seeing their grandkids now and just seeing what God's doing in their life and we had a part of that.
0: You had a creative way of feeding your family as well as (laughs) the kids. Can we really talk about this? I think the statute of limitations (laughs) has passed. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I can safely say that the statute of limitations has passed. <laughs> okay, it's been 30-plus so, years. Yeah,
1: so Joanna grew up in a very, well, I don't, I don't want to say legalistic, but it probably was legalistic, you know, the dogmatic right-wing. And I grew up opposite of that, but I, I just wanted to provide for my family and and these kids that were coming over. And so I'm like, man, we don't have any money. And so—
0: Meat's expensive. Meat's
1: expensive, and I'm like— all right, God's given me the ability to take my little recurve bow, and I got plenty of arrows, and so I was allowed two deer a year, one with the rifle, one with the bow in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. But those two deer would last about, you know, maybe two, three weeks with all those teenagers Mm -hmm. in our family, so I'd go out in the evening in the winter and uh, had a special place I went with a nice big hill and these deer just, it was a funnel, and these deer just poured through there every night after dark. And so I had to practice, but, I mean, I, I would shoot about 15 deer a year with my bow and find them then and then get them in a, you know, debone them, put them in a backpack and sneak out of the woods, get back to my neighbor's house, uh, an old trapper who taught me to trap, and I'd go over to Jim's house and on his two big tables by his freezers and we just he'd help me get that meat all packaged up put it in freezer wrap and then i would little by little bring it over to our freezer and joanna just thought those deer just
0: multiplied yeah she was like (laughs)
1: that it's like and so later like years later when we were going to some counseling and stuff and i told her all this, she's like i don't know how i never caught on to that how I never knew that we could, she knows now, you know? That, yeah. But she was just, you know, babies and youth ministry and stuff and I just kept bringing venison out. So yeah, there was a lot of venison. But you almost got caught. <laughs> I did, so I was coming out one, it was, I ended up coming out just after daylight onto the Tuscobia Trail by Winter, Wisconsin and I see this truck coming and here it is, the game warden truck and I'm like, oh man. And so I chucked my bow into the bushes and I had my backpack on. I'm like, our ministry's over. I'm done. This is, I should never have done this. I felt really guilty. And here's these two guys, both of their daughters are in our youth ministry and our son and a daughter. And um, they said, they always called me Phaser. And they said, Phaser, what you doing? And I said to Ray, I said... You have blood on your hands. I have blood on my hands. And I'm like, I said... "Uh, Literal
0: blood on your hands. Literal blood
1: on my hands. And I was going to start just telling them exactly what was up. I wasn't going to try and lie or, Mm -hmm. you know, I was just going to say I'm so sorry. And they stopped me and they said, we know what you're doing. Thanks for taking care of our kids. And just be careful. And off they went. (laughs) And um, I would take those guys ice fishing every Martin Luther King Day that was a holiday for them as state employees. Mm-hmm. And so I'd get a phone call from one of the guys, and he'd say, hey, Phaser, this is the Eternal Revenue Service. That's how he'd call me on the old <laughs> landline, and he'd say, hey, we need you to take us. So I'd take them up to Sand Lake, and we'd go, I'd take all these game wardens ice fishing. I'm like, here, I'm taking them fishing, and I'm killing all these deer and I <laughs> like. <laughs> So uh, fifteen deer a year. Yeah, yeah. And John knows that culture well, and he has more stories than I do. Not from himself, but how he was brought up and had to be to provide for him and his family too. And I did end up getting a few deer in their backyard as well later. Up in a, I would climb up in this. uh John's mom would, and aunt would decorate this tree in their backyard, and I don't a maple tree or something. This big one and. I would wait till after dark and I'd climb up there and they'd turn the lights on and the deer would come in. And I remember shooting deer out of that too at John's John's house. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, so that was part of trying to raise a family in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, and then I trapped a lot and bought and sold deer hides as well. And so yeah, it was, seems like two lifetimes ago, but... (laughs) It was pretty neat when I look back at it.
0: Yeah. But then you got back into the family business.
1: Did, yeah. We went to a Bible camp for four years and then my dad was turning 70 and he still it just, I don't think he ever would have left the business. He'd have died in his chair. We came back and I said, we'll come back just for two years to help him. I wanna just help him and see if we can transition this business to somebody else. And because
0: so you had no interest in the family business. I had
1: none out of all my siblings, probably the least. Really? Yeah, I just didn't like it. I didn't like the business. I didn't like having to work there. My dad was always working. It kind of took my dad away, I felt. And so I was like, I'm never, ever going to have anything to do with this business. Well, I came back, and it was much more than I ever thought or imagined, and I could see the pressure my dad was under. And um, we ended up staying and getting my plumbing license, HVAC license, all doing all that. And then my dad got me more involved in the business and then we retired him at 71. In what year? 2004, he finally retired. Mm. And so we took it over. We had been running it for a few years, but then we fully took it over then and I'm glad we did and we have an amazing
0: company and team right now. So, yeah, but it wasn't always. You actually kind of stepped away and we did gave control to... We did. So we,
1: in 2014, I totally stepped away for the whole year and let a company come in and manage it because they were looking at they wanted to buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in December 26th of 2014, they came in and we made the transition for them to buy the company and we were really involved in fellowship adventures, outdoor outdoor ministry to men, you know, with pheasant hunting, fishing in Canada. Now it's all, all over the country, but it's pretty unique ministry that Jeff Moore started with pheasant hunting in South Dakota. And then he came up here and wanted to catch a muskie, another friend introduced me to him. Mm -hmm. So he came here and we spent three days here at our place and really hit it off around the campfire. And he said, hey, you know, I have guys asking me about fishing. Would you consider doing this with me? And then we talked about turkey hunting and deer hunting. And Jeff is a man of action, a man of vision, but a man of action. And next thing I know, two months later, we're in Canada exploring uh, these places with a couple other guys and then the next year we were had our first trips with compassion international did the first two trips, and now it's you know really, really grown. So we were getting more and more involved with that full time and then you know I'm up in canada well actually i was I was in Wyoming on a bear hunt with one of the f a clients. And I ended up on a phone call with these people that were buying our business and it was not going well. And How so? We had employees that were with us for 20 some years, 15 years, a lot of tenure, and they were all leaving. They did not, this new owners were not, I just don't think they were treating them well, obviously, cause they're all leaving, but these were like family to us. And so the business had dropped about 80% Ooh. in volume. And there was some debt, so it couldn't do that with that debt. And I ended up on a phone call with the two guys, or the main guys buying it. And here I am with this client. I'm trying to be outside the hotel room in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, before we head up to the lodge in the mountains. And then all I have is a satellite phone. I'm talking to him, and I'm like, this is not sounding good. I real quick called Joanna and I said, what's going on in the bank? What's going on with the business? So we finally saw that it was totally upside down and I got up to the lodge, got on the satellite phone, got a speeding ticket on the way. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is, this is a good day. And got up to the lodge and I'm sitting by one of those old you know fences that are all made out of logs, crisscrossed and mm-hmm. beautiful spot. And... I ended up talking to my manager who's the only guy that's still there that was from the original crew. Yeah. And I said, "Kyle, I said um, I think we're going to have to take the business back if we're going to save it." And these guys are out. They're like, "You know, it's upside down totally. All the money's gone. Money money market's gone, the bank accounts are gone, credit cards are all, you know, all the Amexes are maxed out. Vendors are owed a ton of money. And we have no employees. You know, it was like a mass exodus. And so I remember I went in then went into the lodge that night. And, the, you know, I'm just kind of realizing what's in front of me and how hard this is going to be. And I'm trying to be present with my guest and with the people Mm -hmm. there. And we had this amazing meal from the chef. Mm -hmm. And I had to excuse myself, and I went out behind the lodge and I just puked and puked Mm. and I was overwhelmed with like, wow, this is going to be like hard. So I got back after the bear hunt and came back to the business and was quickly met by, our bank was there. They had my normal banker that I had a great relationship with and he's a believer. And Larry said, Phil, he said, I'm really sorry, but we're handing you over to our asset banker. I was like, what is that? He said, well, we're putting you in a forbearance agreement. I said, what is that? And so I had to literally go online and look up forbearance agreement. I'm like, holy cow, I better get an attorney. So I had to go to an attorney, you know, so that was in right after Mother's Day in 2015. So what is a
0: forbearance agreement?
1: Forbearance agreement is actually, I looked at it as a bad thing, but they're circling the wagons knowing that you're probably not going to make it. Mm -hmm. and so they control every penny you have all our real estate properties they made me go get I don't have a choice so here you are we're pouring cash into this hundreds of thousands into this company and it eats it up as fast as you put it in because it's so upside down and so they made me go and get appraisals on all my buildings all of our residential properties commercial properties vacant lands and I had to get a appraised price on normal, like if we're gonna sell it, what would that be? If I want a ninety day sale, what would that be? If I want to sell it today, what's that price? Mm-hmm. And all very different. I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, this is giving me income. I need that income, you know, right now to feed our business. And this asset banker I, he was brutal. I told him I said, You you should be in a, I call wife shirt, but the ripped off T shirt in Newark, New Jersey at a pawn shop. I said, cause that's the kind of guy you are. And he was always negative. And I said, Tony, I said, out of 10 people that you put in a 4 agreement that you work with, how many make it? He said, one and a half or two. I said, well, let's have those conversations. All mm. right, let's look at it in that light. I need those conversations.
0: Mm. How
1: are we gonna make it through this? Mm. So Joanna and I literally were selling everything and I'm trying to have my game face on with my team and people were bringing on and trying to cheer them on like we're going to make this, we're going to do this and knowing the whole time and I, I was not sleeping. I mean, I would literally not sleeping. I'd be in the cold sweats in the middle of the night, get up and take a shower. My CPA, the bankers, everybody, you know, the other bankers I was talking to were like file bankruptcy get out of here, just, you're gonna lose everything if you don't just close these and I couldn't do it. I was like, I just could never imagine the conversation with my dad and uncle to say we lost the business. Mm. And so we, we fought through it. And I remember selling stuff, meeting a vendor, we'd sell a furnace, I didn't have money to buy it. So I'd sell something, we'd sell something, I'd figure out how to get the cash. And I'd run an hour south and I'd meet him in a parking lot. He'd put the furnace in the back of my truck and off I'd go and we'd put it in and make some money. And I remember one day being $88,000 in the hole in the bank account and payroll was gonna hit for I think 60 some thousand that day Mm -hmm. and I'm waiting for the phone call and sure enough here it comes from my banker. I'm like, ah, I'm pacing around the room, pacing around the room. And so we we got through all that. And where did that tenacity come from? You know, I had a guy tell me. He said you're stubborn, and he said the (laughs) only reason you made it is because you were dead and you were too stupid to lay down. (laughs) He's like you were dead, yeah, but you wouldn't lay down. You just kept going, and you know I think it just part of the fight of my, you know, the negative, the pain part of part of my growing up, and the. The abuse and stuff and the fight and the drive and not wanting to ever give up. Part of it came from that probably, but I just didn't want to fail. And yet a lot of people do, and that's why bankruptcy's there. It's not like a life-ending or devastating thing. It's there for a reason, right? And it just was the drive to not fail my family. If my dad and uncle had been gone, I probably would have just said, let's go do something else but I didn't want to fail them. In this little town, our company's been there for so long. I also didn't want to fail our community. I also know the families of the vendors that we owed money to. And I wouldn't always have paid them back even if we did bankruptcy, because I know those families. So I think that's a big part of what drove us to get through it. Mm. And um, mm. so we made it through and, and now, And there's a lot of stuff in between all this. But, you know, now we have a top line like we've never had. We've grown over 30% the last three years. We're well beyond where we were. But our bottom line is amazing. We've got an amazing bank account. We're able to give not just to our employees that have some needs, but to our community, to ministries, and do things that we've never been able to do before in a way I never would have imagined. So, you know, God was faithful, Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I look at it and I don't ever want to go through it again, but I'm very grateful for it. And we've learned a lot. We appreciate employees like I never did before. I thought I did Mm -hmm. and I thought I loved them. But when you lose them, you realize how much they mean to you. And so now we've got all these new great employees and I'd do anything for them. You know, and, and you have done
0: anything for one of them. We were talking this morning.
1: Yeah, we've got one young man <laughs> came to a plumbing and heating shop in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, in a three-piece suit to apply for a job. <laughs> so he, he came four years ago, and he had worked for Thrivent Financial in Minneapolis as an HR guy for a bunch of pretty high-end guys. Yeah, Wanted to get out of Minneapolis. Came to Rhinelander. And man, I said, Adam, I said, we we got a warehouse job for you. And he's like, I'll take it. I want to raise my daughter here. My wife's a teacher. Mm -hmm. So he took the job and he's in the warehouse. And we had this plumber come up to him one day and say, Adam, if plumbing was easy, even you could do it. So Adam comes to me, and goes, Phil, I want to be a plumber. So (laughs) I was like, are you sure? Like, yeah, I want to be a plumber. I said, all right. So I got in the truck with him, and we worked all summer, and he went into the plumbing apprenticeship. And he has been, for our state, the plumbing board, like a role model student, just amazing, mm-hmm. and to our company, amazing. And in May, he wasn't feeling real good. And I, you could tell something was off for like three or four months. He was just off, and I'm like, man, I, I hope we're not losing Adam, you know, like to attitude or to whatever if he's getting, you know, you know, I just didn't know what was going on. And so we had a talk with him when he went to the doctor and here he's got pretty bad cancer. Mm. And it didn't sound good at all. You know, Mm. lymph nodes and stomach is full of cancer. And I'm like, man, this kid has been doing so good. He's in his fourth year now. He gets to write his test next year. So we're, we all rallied around him and Adam, you know, obviously can't work. And so he's going to Mayo and going through operations. And so our team, we decided to pay him 70% of his wage. Plus we did other stuff to help make up for that and other people in the community did, but we're paying him his wage this whole time. December 28th, he comes back to work 20 hours a week. He'll be at our Christmas party, which will be a distant thing, but. He'll be there this next week, but we had a birthday party for his daughter, Claire. He has one one girl, and um, the fire department showed up, the police department. We had, you know, 15, 20 of our trucks in line, an amazing day for his daughter, Claire, but I think even more for him. Mm -hmm. We just went over and put his Christmas tree up and helped him decorate and, you know, stuff that we couldn't have it would have been hard to do when we had no no means or couldn't even think about that stuff when we're trying to survive and but yeah it's drawn our company closer together and um so yeah it's we've had other employees go through stuff and you know part of being an employer i think is it's not all about the revenue on the top and bottom you know we have all these families we get to affect even our vendors and their families and you know it, it took that hardship for me to realize that that was my mission it's bigger than you know great someday you get to sell your business what are you going to do well it's the journey and the people that really because we spend so much time together at your job you know and and so that's something i took for granted
0: until we went through that Hmm. and this year was looking i mean when we first met we met on the zoom Purfs, yeah. yep. The Zoom holy smokes that we did right at the very beginning of COVID, and uh, it was looking like COVID was going to hurt your business. And I remember seeing that just the concern on your face. I remember we prayed for you once mm-hmm. or twice, yeah. and you know, yeah, it, it
1: was when COVID first hit. Our sales took probably a ninety percent dive, and I'm like, man, we were just like cooking. You know, we're doing good, we're cooking, it's going good, and then COVID. And uh, that was about maybe a month, and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody's at home. Everybody's staying home. They're using their plumbing more than they've ever used it. They're heating and air. Everybody's using these things called flushable wipes that are not flushable. (laughs) And we were making bank off this, but telling people don't use these. And I was like, you know, our sewer and drain was going great, our plumbing, our HVAC, and we had a record year. But it was horrible at first. And if it would have continued on that, it would be a different—I don't be a different story in another battle. But like many people are having, which I, you know, that's why we go to the restaurants when we can. We tip higher than we've ever tipped. We do whatever we can for these people in our community that are affected you know by covid because of the shutdowns yeah so, but i'm
0: glad we got through that <laughs> yeah i was excited to hear that at the turnaround mm-hmm. that's just very cool phil i guarantee you there are people listening right now some business owners that are listening and they are in the position where you were in 2014 2015 mm-hmm. where it's upside down they don't know where it's going to come from they're been likely maybe hit by COVID. They could be listening years later and Mm -hmm. just going through something. What kind of encouragement would you want to give them?
1: Well, I think just getting some really good people in your life and staying connected to them. And that might be people that have walked it. It might be just people that you can be totally transparent with and say where you're at to walk through that with you and to pray with you and to encourage you and you know the people around you I mean listen to you know as much as I didn't like that banker you know he did the right things and your professional people around you I have a few friends that you know got me through that and helped me and then some of the stuff my grandpa said that rings in my ears you know you know about how to get through tough times and my dad and just i don't know just the lessons in life that you've learned from your family your business the people around you some good books you know there was my banker gave me a great book and it really resonated with me and i kept listening to it on audible and and, and going. the book was it was shoe dog the story of nike and just the story of how whether i like or dislike nike the story of their business and their failures in the beginning and how they made it through some tough times like I was going through, it was like, man, there's people that have done this. And another book called The Road Less Stupid and uh, by Keith Cunningham. And Keith Cunningham, I believe, was, you know, you have the rich dad, poor dad guy. I think he was the rich dad. He was the, actually the guy that was the rich dad for Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah. And so Keith wrote this book called The Road Less Stupid about mistakes we make in business and in life and in the HR stuff and when we make wrong decisions we have to pay what he calls a dumb tax and I was like man this guy wrote this book about me <laughs> it's like, so so I think just feeding yourself with really positive stuff like that and then Joanne and I went through a hard time in the beginning because you know when tragedy happens in a, in a family whether it's a business or a personal you know it affects our family in ways that kind of like when You know my nephew just moved here from Atlanta and he brought this pickup up here and he's never been in the Northwoods and I'm trying to tell him how to get his pickup ready for 20 and 30 below zero and that his pickups gonna make some squeals and noises he's never heard before Mm -hmm. and the weak spots are gonna come out and that's kind of what happened when we went through this hard time in the business is the weak spots showed up my weaknesses my areas that, you know, needed work on in my relationship with my wife and my kids and my family and my employees. And so in those hard times, those weak spots kind of show up and you you need help. So that, I don't know. Anyway, that's the stuff looking back is there's people I'm really grateful for that stood with me through that. And I knew they were praying for me every day. And I could say anything too, if I got mad, I could call them up and bellow off with them a little bit and they were fine. (laughs) You know,
0: yeah. cigars help me a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. Phil Fraser, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you as a listener can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes. By becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash Holy Smokes patreon is a support platform and for as little as five dollars a month you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes holy smoke swag like t-shirts and more that's patreon.com slash holy smokes we're looking to get 40 patreon supporters at an average of ten dollars a month and once we hit that we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting editing writing posting, I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, We'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant and web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I wanna go to Seattle and I wanna go to Dallas and I wanna go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I wanna go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, DC, Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com/slash holysmokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com holysmokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax-deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holysmokes club. That's paypal.me slash smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. When did you first get into cigars? Well, I smoked a pipe
1: for a lot of years. My dad smoked a pipe. Did he? Yeah, and, and, and he told me this in the last five years. I said, why'd you quit? He said, because I inhaled. He said, I would even lick the bowl if I could. He said, I loved it, and I was addicted. So I remember one day, he went out in the driveway, and he took a hammer, and he pounded all those pipes and beat them up, and he said, I'm done. And that was it. But I've always, when I played hockey, we had outdoor rink in Rylander, and I'd be skating around the boards, skating around the boards, and I knew when I went by my dad, I could smell his pipe. I'm like, my dad's here watching me play hockey. And um, I loved it, and so I smoked a pipe for, I still do, I love black Cavendish. Aromac, I love it. And when I'm in the boat fishing, I'll have cigars in my little cigar caddy, but I always have a pipe in there, and I'm smoking a pipe. But cigars, the first good cigar I had was with Jeff, more in South Dakota. And he gave me a Fuente short story. And then we had the classic, and then we had the read between the lines. And I mean, I love Fuente cigars. I just really, really like them. And so it was, that's really, so in 2012 Mm -hmm. is when I really started smoking cigars and enjoying them. and Joanna, you know, again, grew up in that conservative family. So for me, with the pipe, she was always, she liked the smell. Cigars at first, now she loves that I smoke them. She's, sometimes she'll say, you need to go smoke a cigar. You know, so it's, it's, she sees the, yeah. Um, yeah you know, what it does and calming and reflection. And and so she's totally on board with it. She's not ready to try one yet. You tried uh, yesterday. I, the,
0: I, I got her thinking about it. Yeah. I got her thinking about yeah,
1: it. Yeah, we need to get
0: her some of the flavored cigars and see what she, so she did so a when, hookah though she did a hookah so. yeah you said that you said that so i i told you you guys got to come to colorado springs and she gets around some of those holy smoke women the yep. holy grails in colorado springs she would love it like megan and stevie yeah. and all of them i guarantee you i'll make sure that she has we'll figure out the flavored cigar that she would like that'd and, be awesome and, and get her to try and maybe just a little cigarillo yeah one of those little flavored cigarillos yeah. and just she gets around those women. I think we she might would. get her We yeah, might get her would. in.
1: She definitely, I mean, she's listened to all the podcasts and she loves it. So she's loves the Holy Smokes. Do
0: you have a preference between cigar or pipe?
1: Cigar is easier. And for that reason, but if I had a, I mean, if I was like, I can either have a cigar or a pipe. If it's your last one. I'd be over there grabbing my pipe and uh, some black Cavendish and enjoy my pipe. But I love cigars.
0: Yeah. What's your favorite cigar?
1: Probably this right here, the Fuente Reserve.
0: Grand Reserve. I love this cigar. You got a bunch but, of them in your humidor. Yeah, I do. Yep. And I like Romeo and Julieta's too a little bit. So. Yeah, I so saw the eighteen seventy five yep. reserves. Yep. Those are good ones. I yep. like I like getting those. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked. Oh
1: I had a guy bring one to FA in Canada. And I mean it was It was an Alec Bradley, one of their top ones. I have the label somewhere. I don't remember which one it was, but it was really, really good. And I saved it for a very special time because he came and brought it to me, said, Phil, this is a special cigar. I brought it for you. And uh, so Mark gave me that, and I smoked it with my son, Scott, in South Dakota on a hillside just sitting with my son.
0: Your favorite dollar-for-dollar cigar?
1: Probably the classic, the Fuente Classic. It's reasonable. And really, really smooth. Where's your go to place to get your smokes? Cigars dot com and right in town I like supporting our these people put up a pretty cool humidor and got some really good cigars in there and I like supporting them so I go in there and buy, you know, a dozen at a time. So they're more expensive than online, yeah. but it's for them, you know, supporting them. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? My favorite is Probably Woodford Reserve, even though we're drinking some good bourbon here. But I I like
0: Woodford. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars. Ooh. Because you've met a bunch. Yeah. With your time at... F.A. F.A. Fellowship Adventures. You know what I'm going to say is probably
1: the most interesting guy I've ever met. He's had a pretty big impact on my life been uber patient with me through all the business stuff and fa stuff i'm gonna say jeff moore and jeff
0: moore is the musician
1: right jeff Moore in the distance yeah and jeff has just loved my family walked with me through a ton of stuff and he's one of the most faithful men i've ever met in my life Mm. and so Mm. and he's interesting <laughs> so I love him and uh, would do anything for him. But That's I, saying
0: quite a bit, considering all the names that we've talked about that have yeah, stayed here yeah, and
1: yeah, yeah. We've had, you know, for some reason in this little corner of nowhere, there's been some pretty neat people come through here, and so. But to, I would say if I, I would, you know, if I was going to have a cigar, if I said, like, you got a campfire, you can have a cigar with somebody right now, you know, I'd want Jeff on that campfire. Mm. The conversation he brings out and draws and gives and the relational stuff he does is is pretty special. And he's just a great
0: friend. Best place you've ever smoked?
1: Up against two, a bunch of big round hay bales in a blizzard <laughs> in South Dakota with two other guys just sitting there it was just a um, magical, amazing moment, and we sat there and had a cigar and had a great conversation up against those hay bales in a blizzard in the spring. Well, it was one of my favorite memories of a cigar. <laughs> I've had some pretty neat cigars in neat places, but that was a great
0: memory. Favorite food? Mm. Sushi. Uh, we've talked about that. By far. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Dogs, I love dogs.
1: Cats, I like to watch and tease them, but I'm so allergic to them. Mm. But I love watching them. So, but I, so I like them both. I just can't have one.
0: Yeah. Nickname growing up or in college. <laughs> really? Need ministry. Yeah, let's hear it.
1: <laughs> uh, so when I was little, I'd get so busy... It's my family nickname. i get so busy, I'd be fishing, I'd be catching worms to go fishing, in puddles, until I was like seven years old. And i get too busy and I'd piss my pants. And <laughs> my dad finally is like, why don't you take the time? I said, well, I was fishing and I just had to keep fishing, you know, and he's like, so he says, one day look down the road and here I'm walking with my fishing pole, and he says to my siblings, Well, here comes Spot. <laughs> and so I walk in and they go, Hi, Spot. And I'm like, What? And I look down, and I'm like, oh, That was the last time it ever happened. <laughs> but my siblings all call me Spot for years.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: What's one unusual fact that few people know about you other than Spot?
1: Um, I bought and sold deer hides by the semi foal when we were in youth ministry. I'd write a check for like 15000 and again, we made like 4000 I bought an old school bus, emptied it out, all the seats. I'd go buy these deer hides from guys, give them a check for like fifteen grand, and hope that bus could make it two and a half, three hours to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where this big buyer was. He'd write me a check. I'd make it back to my hometown with a check bigger and put it in the bank, and I did that for like four or five years in became one of the best buyers in the country in that four or five years, mm. paid for one of our kids' birth because we didn't have insurance, bought 80 acres of land and a four-wheeler, stuff I never could have afforded just by buying and selling semi-loads full of deer hides eventually. <laughs> so kind of a weird thing, but I did it.
0: <laughs> You're a reader, you love listening to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible?
1: Well. I really, just because of where I'm at right now, that one, The Road Less Stupid, I like that. I liked Shoe Dog. Again, it's a story about a guy that struggled and how he got through it. A third book. I like a lot of John Maxwell stuff. I think Talent. Was that one? Talent Alone Isn't Enough. I like that book.
0: Okay.
1: So, anyway. that's Yeah.
0: Do you have a life scripture?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I... 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, "Be ye totally steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and knowing that your labor is not in vain." But it, it's it also um, one of the guys that mentored me spiritually told me that I chose that verse because I was driven, and being driven is not right. He said, "He said you spiritualized your drivenness by choosing that verse," and so it was just always was mm. about driving and driving and driving. Mm. Unmovable, unstoppable, go, 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 go. But I still like the verse, but the other one is be still, Mm. which is the opposite. And that's Joanna put that up actually in one of our rooms. And, you know, so I've been trying to focus on that and realizing that I don't always have to be moving and doing, and it's okay to sit down on the deck and just do nothing for an hour, which is against me, or take a nap, which I'm not a napper. You know, so I'm trying to focus on that. So those are a couple, I guess. If you could be any animal, what would you be? Have you ever heard of a fisher? mm So a fisher is probably like, it's like a bigger marten, a smaller wolverine. And they're a pretty cool animal in the Northwoods here. And um, amazing, hunters, smart you know, they're a really cool animal, but I, that's kind of what I would say my life has been like, but so I, I guess the Fisher, you know, it's, they were brought in to get rid of the porcupine. So they'll dive under a porcupine t- under its belly, knock it over, grab it by the throat and then eat the porcupine from the bottom up, you know, mm-hmm. but they're a pretty amazing animal. And, um, mm. I've watched them and they're hard to see. You don't see them often. And I've trapped a few that I've had to let go. And they were hard to trap and hard to let go. But but, uh, because they're ferocious little buggers. But I I really like the fisher. I think it'd just be, they see a lot of country. They're always
0: moving. Huh. Kind of like you and hiking. (laughs) (laughs) If you could live anywhere, where would that be? (laughs) Because you've traveled a lot. Yeah. Uh, Caught fish in all 50 states. Yeah,
1: caught fish in every state in five years. Joanna and I love this little place called Palm Island in Florida, and you gotta take a ferry to get out there. And it's seven miles of pretty private, quiet beach. We can look for shark's teeth. I can fish, sit on a cooler. She walks the beach, we walk the beach, and we love watching the dolphins and just Mm -hmm. hearing the tide, and that's kind of our happy place.
0: What's your greatest strength, and what's your greatest weakness?
1: Mm, probably the same. My drivenness. I really do believe that, and that's. It's just, I am driven and push hard, which you know. Sometimes I take my family and friends on a roller coaster ride that they have blindfolds on and don't know where we're going, and um, you know. But also, when the chips are down, I feel like it's a strength too that I don't want to give up. You know. And especially if I know I'm not supposed to.
0: (laughs) Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful?
1: Um, My dad. Um, Hmm. My dad Hmm. pushed through so much in his life personally, Hmm. from his upbringing to raising nine kids to working through this little small business with nine kids, his relationship with my mom that was tumultuous, but then, uh, to his faith in Christ.
0: But then became so yeah. loving.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so that's the first person I think of when I think of success is my dad.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: what do you do for self care, to rest, to recharge? It's definitely time on the water in the woods. Nothing does it to me. I can be, you know, having the, you know, like when we were going through those really hard times, I'd be in Canada. I'd get on the SAT phone, Jeff and all of us would have the boats ready down at the dock and guys ready to get in them. And my stomach would be spinning, and I could only talk for five minutes to our company. And I'd get in that boat and light a cigar, and I would forget that anything was wrong, you know. And I think I could be sick, really sick, and get in a boat. And I think everything would be okay for those moments. So I just, I love the water. I love being in
0: the boat. Well, that's that's my happy place. Hmm. All right, we're in America's dairy land. I haven't asked this question in a while. What's the best type of cheese?
1: Ooh, there are so many good ones. The one I really, really like, like when we do a, like a, you call it charcuterie tray, it's got a wine. There's two of them. One's got a pepper all the way around it. And the other one has a wine... A red wine flavoring all the way around it it's a white heart I can't remember the name of it I just know right where it is in the store and I grabbed two or three of each of them it's a harder cheese Joanna would know the exact name of it but those are my favorite cheeses
0: I can just I love them and I love Swiss I love a really really good baby Swiss all right last three questions what does holy smokes mean to you and what does it meant for your spiritual journey
1: Well, you know, this spring, I think that's when John introduced me to it. And he said, check this out. These guys have breathed life into me like not many others have. I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And I was kind of reserved at first to do it. And then he introduced me. I was like, oh, he did this already. (laughs) And so I was like, oh. And so, you know, people greeted me, which was really cool. But then he sent me a link to your podcast. And man, I needed that so bad. I couldn't stop listening to him. So I went all the way back to the beginning and I just started listening and listening. I was sitting at home here for like three weeks, but I was listening and listening. And then it did exactly what John said. It was just life-giving, hearing people's stories and you talking with them. And then you guys, you did the... I guess we guys. I'm we now. Did the the Zoom meetings?
0: Yeah, the virtual voice yeah, modes. I was
1: like, really? Like, am I gonna do this? Do I do this or not? I I remember like going in, like I'm gonna get out of here. I go in, I go in, and I like, this is really neat. And so, it refreshed me spiritually in an amazing way to hear these people talk so transparently through all the ups and downs and. Even I remember, you know, them saying that silence is okay. You know, that was brought up a few times. And in the podcast, hearing the lighter click and people relighting, I was like, this is so cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so it's it's been amazing. And I, I'm really grateful you're here. Never thought we'd ever do this. So it's been life-giving to me. It really has. And uh, none of us knew. And you've had an extremely difficult Twenty twenty, but none of us knew what this would bring. But that brings hope, life, and regeneration to us, all of us, as we share in this community.
0: You got to start a holy smoke chapter here. I do. The North Woods people. (laughs) I can find some. We'll find some. Oh yeah. Start doing some regular meetings. I want to see some pictures in the group. I want to see some pictures of the Facebook group. All right. All right. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus
1: you know i think i even kind of talked about this yesterday a little bit as we were just talking about our families but there's a lot of amazing people i'd love to sit around with teddy roosevelt different ones that i can think of that i just love to hear from but my two grandpas and um four my i'd love to talk with my two grandpas and their fathers and just learn about our family them their upbringing and, you know, the questions that, you know, talking to, I was really close to both my grandpa's, uh, I was 14 when one died and lived with them the last year of his life as he was fighting cancer to help him. He taught me to cut a tree down with a chainsaw. (laughs) My other grandpa was that grandpa was like, sit on your lap, grandpa. He'd make all these things for you. my other grandpa was, you know, life's tough, you know? (laughs)
0: You told me some of of his sayings. The the grandpa that took over over the business from your great-grandpa. Right, yeah. He he was an interesting cat.
1: He's interesting, yeah. And um, he had his own way of showing love, not not a hugger. But my questions today for them would not be what they were then. And I would have very, very different questions for them. And then I would love to get to know... You know, I my two great grandfathers are just a mystery to me. It seems like it, and it's not that long ago if you think about it. But it's like they're just a
0: I only hear stories. You know. Well, you t- you told me about your great grandpa that started the business. Mm-hmm. He was a pastor's kid, right? Or well, my
1: grandpa, my grandpa, his grandfather yeah. was a circuit riding preacher. Yeah. He rode around the horse and set up the tent, and my grandpa went with them. But something happened that. My grandpa just turned until his last year, but turned away from any type of Christianity. Mm. Yeah, but that's who I'd want to sit around with. If I could have a cigar with any people, that would be the most meaningful to me, Mm. and I'd draw the most out of, I think, Mm. to connect some dots and answer some
0: questions I might have and learn more about my family. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of your Woodford Reserve. Mm-hmm. What are we celebrating? Hmm.
1: What are we celebrating? <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to be celebrating that I got three more granddaughters. They're coming. Um, so I'd be nine grandkids. And to me, it's more of a, I guess, just where I'm at in my faith journey. You know, I'd mentioned my my really good friend took his life a few years ago. We were talking and, about that last night. Yeah, and that set me back a bit, you know. And so it's been a faith journey back and Holy Smokes has played a big part in that. So just celebrating, you know, where I am and restoring my faith and trust and in that whole walk. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I mean, the business is what it is and Lord willing, our family is still intact. And But really what's important to me is where I'm at there. So mm-hmm.
0: that's what I'd want to celebrate. Phil Frazier, Frazier Heating and Plumbing in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, (laughs) fishing guide, hunting guide with Fellowship Adventures and just hanging out out here in the north woods of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Well, thank you. This has been awesome.